Learning from women leaders who have successfully navigated chief executive careers is so important. Women who have done that with institutions that require huge cultural changes are particularly important to observe. Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Hello from Black's Club Soho, London. It's my real pleasure today to be speaking with Dame Inga Beale. After working in senior global leadership roles in some of the world's largest insurance companies, Dame Inga took over the helm of the 330-year-old city financial institution, Lloyd's of London, in 2014. Taking on many of the traditions that had held the organization back, Inga modernized the market with the introduction of technology and understanding the vital importance of inclusion in the workplace, she challenged the traditional boys club culture to make it a much more inclusive environment for all. Having stepped down as CEO at the end of 2018, she's now embarking on the next chapter of her life, which is a portfolio of non-executive director roles. Welcome, Inga. Thank you, it's good to be here. Inga, what would be really interesting for us to start off with is where your leadership story began. What took you into leadership? Well, I didn't really plan to be a leader. And when I started work in the city of London, the financial heart of London, back in 1982, mm. I was actually a failed student. In other words, I dropped out of university and I needed a job. So when I started off working, I was just taken in by the money, I suppose. Yeah. I thought, gosh, having had no money and suddenly I'm earning, wow, isn't this amazing? And then I got into sport. So the first 10 years of my career, I wasn't focused on leadership. I wasn't even ambitious. Yeah. And I just wanted to do sport. I did a lot of rowing, so mm -hmm. I had to go down to the river. I had to practice. Uh, five days a week and then the sixth day we rode and, and raced and then the seventh day you had a day of rest. And, and then I started playing rugby. And so I only got into leadership after working for 12 years. And did you fall into it? Did you aspire to it? Did you get tapped on the shoulder and someone said you really should do this? I worked for a big American company mm. that was very proactive in talent management. Right. And even though this was in the 90s, managers who worked for this global US company had to promote women right. and they had to promote people from ethnic minorities. Right. Now, a lot of people question the rights and wrongs of whether you should set targets and things for promoting women. Now, I was the beneficiary of that policy. My manager promoted me or came and tried to promote me. Right. I actually said no. I said, no way. I wasn't confident enough. I didn't believe I had the right skills, mm -hmm. the ability, the experience. So I said, no. But his bonus was going to be negatively impacted by me saying no, because he couldn't promote a woman. So he 
basically called on the, the resources of the big global group, went to the US and said, I've got an issue, I can't promote Inga. She said no. And I was surrounded by the support network of the company. Mm -hmm. A senior woman from the US flew over to London to see me and she said, you know, what's wrong, basically? They gave me all the support I needed. I went on an assertiveness for women, women training course, went back into the office of my boss and said, I'll take the job. And that was how I got my very, very first leadership role managing a small team of three people. So they could see it. They could see your potential and your performance. So what was it about the assertiveness course that turned the dial for you around, yes, I can do this, I want to do this? It helped me see how other people viewed me. Okay. Because I was looking at everything from my own point of view. I got very nervous if I was in meetings with senior people. Mm -hmm. I didn't speak up very much. I didn't think I had leadership yeah. skills. I didn't know I had any. You didn't see yourself as that yeah. person. And then when I did this Assertiveness for Women course, which was one week long, eight women only, all together for a week, we went into all sorts of discussions, sort of sometimes very tearful moments as we explored our own personalities. But the big thing was getting the feedback from others. They didn't know you, they only got to know you over that, that, that course. Mm. And suddenly you got this feedback which made you think, oh, gosh, is that how you see me? Oh, do I come across as confident? And that was, it was pretty simple, actually, if I'm honest. And at the end of that, I felt like a different person, That's full fantastic. of confidence. So you were pleased that that, that that manager persisted with tapping you on the shoulder and gave you the support. So I what did. was it like in your first role as a leader? I then started to realise how much I enjoyed it. Mm. I realised how much I enjoyed developing other people, mm. spending time managing people. And it isn't for everyone. Because suddenly when you're responsible for other people in the workplace, you have to give up a considerable amount of time that you used to spend on perhaps doing those tasks and mm. activities that you felt comfortable doing. You've now got to focus on people. You're responsible for them. Some people hate it. I loved it. And I loved seeing people grow. I loved having conversations with them, giving them open and honest feedback, but also lots of encouragement. I also love the team aspect. I love I loved the fact that we all worked as a team mm. and we managed to have a lot of fun at work as well as work hard and actually deliver, you know, on what we had to and grow the business and yeah. everything like that. So what was the next step? You had your first quite pivotal leadership experience, which you relished and obviously thrived in. What next? The next big thing was that the company I worked for offered me a role in the US. Mm. And I had been working by then in the city of London for 19 years. It was my comfort zone. I'd got to you know, run as, as a successful portion of the business and I was offered a role in the US. And this was in the sort of back office. It was in the controlling head office of the business. I was leaving the front line where I'd been negotiating. I'd been in very salesy roles. And I thought, gosh, do I really want to do that? Do I want to give up my comfort of London? But I realized for me, it was an opportunity to get close to the center of the organization mm -hmm. and learn new skills and move up the ladder. And so after two weeks of debate with myself, yep. I said yes to that role and I moved to the US and it was just an amazing opportunity. What, what did you love about it? What did you learn there? Well, I got exposure that I would never have got before right. because there I was, right in the center of the company. 
I was meeting the global CEO. I was meeting other people on the global executive mm. committee. I had the opportunity to form a new function, to hire lots of new people. It was the first time I'd run a global team where my people were not sitting, never mind, in the same office. They weren't in the same country. And other, up until then, all my team had been physically Quite in the close, same building. Yeah. And so that was fantastic. And I got sent on leadership training mm. courses that I would never, I don't think, have got sent on if I'd stayed in London. Um, and it just, I just grew so much. I learned about different work cultures. I learned more about the US culture, yeah. how it was actually very different to the British working culture, even though I thought it would be pretty similar. Yes. It was very different. Yep. I grew up a lot. It, it, it was a great learning opportunity. How long were you in the US for? Too short a time, because after two years, I was offered another job back in Europe. Yes. And when you work for these big organizations and they offer you opportunities, you don't really say no, because yes. that is a bit of a black mark. You've got to be it willing. It goes with the progression. Yeah. Mm. And I was offered to be based in France or Germany. Um, they were very generous, and I thought, hmm, actually, I'd like to live in Paris. So I moved from the US, I moved to Paris and had a leadership role across Europe. Fantastic. Mm. So when you look at your leadership career, there were obviously some, you've even described now, some real crossroads where you had to step over the line and go, yes, I will do this. What, did, what were you drawing on when you, because often women talk to me about that. Well, I've got this big decision. You know, will I, won't I? It feels a bit scary. What were you drawing on in yourself? I had two very important mentors. I had a female mentor who's now she's retired, she's doing a non-executive work. She's based in Denmark, she's mm. Danish. She was a wonderful mentor to me and I could go to her whenever I had issues to discuss. I also had an excellent male mentor who worked in a, in a business similar to the business I was in, so the same industry, but nothing to do with my, um, my business. And they were very important people. So whenever I had a challenge in business or I had a decision to make about my career, right. I would go to them. Yeah. I also started to get connected in women's networks. Mm -hmm. I worked at GE and GE has had women's networks for many, many years. I was then felt very supported by a lot of women okay. and I had lots of safe opportunities for conversation with them. Yes. Mm. So safe opportunities, it's an interesting, an interesting uh, phrase to, to use. So you had your mentor. How did you, when you say safe opportunities, what was feeling risky for you in your career as a woman leader? Well, one of the times I had to take a big decision was by this time I was now in Munich and the company I worked for had been sold to another company. And we didn't know what anyone's actual future was going okay. to be. Yeah, so, so very uncertain yeah, times. So I had the uncertainty of joining the new organization, wondering where I would fit, or taking on a role of a CEO of a listed company in Switzerland, and I'd never run a listed company before. Mm -hmm. I'd run big divisions only. And it was a, it was a mess, this company. It had been um, hemorrhaging business. It had, it had had to fire its CEO a year earlier. It had been rudderless for a year. Right. The market cap had um, collapsed. The shareholders were angry. Customers had left them. They'd had to close offices. It was a disaster. And I had the choice of staying with this unknown merged entity yes. or taking this rather scary yes. PLC role, trying to think about how on earth you would do a turnaround. Yes. And that was a very risky decision for me. 
And that was when I really need to lean on people who advised me. Yeah. And I got some really good advice and I took that risky role and I moved to Switzerland. And I was 43 at that time. Good decision? Oh, fantastic decision. Yeah. But I didn't, I wasn't prepared for it at all. I didn't know what it meant to be a CEO of a listed company. I didn't know how to deal with angry I write shareholders. Um, I didn't know how to deal with all the financial strength ratings companies, the, because in, in financial services, you need to have this external party yes. giving you a financial strength rating. Mm. I'd never dealt with them before. I didn't know how you had to deal with them, with all the regulators, with the media. The media went crazy. I was 43. I was taking over as the first female of a publicly listed company or financial services company in Switzerland, first female ever to do that. And worst of all, I was British. <laughs> and so I was suddenly the focus of the media. And I'd never had this attention before. And then I had to turn around the company, yes. hire new people. I was not prepared for it at all, but I loved it. What did you learn most in that first six to nine months that you were surprised that you needed to learn? Um, I don't know whether I was surprised that I needed to learn it, but what was so fascinating for me was how much instinct, instinctively you, you feel that you need to do something. And then you go through a phase of doubting your instinct and you think you've got to check on it and you think you have to be a bit more scientific about this. Mm -hmm. And I'll just give you an example when it comes to people. Because I remember arriving, meeting the existing team, feeling instinctively that a couple of them I needed to change. And then I went through a period of doubt saying, no, actually, maybe I should be, be a bit more scientific about this. Going through this elongated process of um, evaluating them and then actually deciding, my instinct right at the beginning in the first two weeks was the right one. And the sooner the better would have yeah. been better. Yes. And that was a big learning for me because, again, it was perhaps this lack of confidence that mm -hmm. you'd never really been in that situation before. And you thought, can I trust my gut instinct here? Don't I need a little bit of more reassurance? More science to, yeah. yeah. And I should have just gone with my gut mm. earlier. Yeah. And has that stood you in good stead? In your career? It has. Trusting your instincts? It has. And I do that a lot. But sometimes I do write the lists, the pros and cons, if I'm yes. coming to make a decision. And it, it doesn't actually matter what the outcome is. So maybe I've got more pros and cons. But if that doesn't feel right in my gut, yes. I, I ignore it. Yes. But at least the process, the process Even though you know it, your gut is going to trump <laughs> whatever comes out of yes. that. So how important was it for you? You were, you were breaking new vanguards, really, as a young woman in these new roles in institutions that weren't used to having female leaders. What did you draw on as a woman? I just know that women have enormous inner strength. We have the ability to cope with many things going on at the same time. And I think we have an ability to be very calm when things can get very rough. Mm. And uh, within two years of joining this Swiss company, because we'd done the turnaround, we'd doubled the market cap, everyone was happy, things were going swimmingly, we were then um, the target of a takeover. Right. And that was when we were in a bit of a crisis because it was a hostile bid and we wanted to stay independent mm. and we had to defend and defend and defend. And then I realised how strong you can be particularly I think as a woman, because we're very used to nurturing and caring for others. Yes. And that seems to become the primary 
response and it emerges from you and this nurturing caring comes out and all you want to do is make sure that everyone else is okay mm. and you put yourself secondary mm. but that quite honestly is the right thing to do in times terms of crisis and times of crisis it's the right thing to do because it's not about you as an individual it's about you making sure that everyone else is all right and that the business is functioning and we're making the right decisions for the business and I think that's a particularly female trait mm. um, that holds us in good stead in moments of crisis. So how do you look after yourself and build your own resilience when you're busy looking after other people? I escape. I escape with friends and family. I rarely mix my social life with my work life. Mm. Now, a lot of people think they have a lot of friends at work. And a lot of people actually develop strong friendships through work. But I found that that can end up in some conflict situations. Yeah. So I've always tried to keep those two things mm. quite separate. And that means when I go into my social downtime at weekends, weekends have become very precious, I will spend time with people I can truly relax with and be myself and re regenerate. And your work identity is actually part. Yes. So who you are. Yes. In yeah. fact, it was very interesting. I remember being at a party once with my partner and somebody at that party who I hadn't met before knew me at work or knew of, of me through yes. the work environment and then asked me a question about work. And I immediately, my work persona came on. I answered the question. We had a little conversation. My partner said, I didn't recognize you, Inga. You were a different person. Yeah. And I do have these personas, but that has kept me going. Yeah. So you've been able to turn that off. Mm. Yeah. So when we look at women's leadership in general, um, what's your perception of what some of the either obstacles or opportunities are for women in leadership and what you've seen over the last couple of decades? It has changed a lot. There are many more women now in senior roles, so we do have some role models. Even yes. though we may not have enough, yes. and I don't believe we have enough, we have more role models. So we can have women who've made it that the women coming through can look up and say, yes, I can get there. Mm. We have much more, more conversation now about the differences between the genders. There's a much better recognition of the differences in leadership styles of men and women. We acknowledge it. I think we're getting much better at saying, actually, it's much more about the team. And I know, for instance, whenever I've been looking to hire people into my team, I'm specifically looking for people who are different to me yes. to counterbalance what I am and what I bring. And that is very important. But there are still a lot of, I don't know, biases that go on, whether they're conscious or unconscious, societal expectations, microaggressions that mean that it can still be very tough for women when they work in a very male environment. And sometimes you have to, you've got to get the issues out on the table to actually work through them. And I have found over the years, I've had always, I've had great learning experiences when I talk to a man mm. about how he would have approached a situation when I look at how I would have approached it. Because generally we do approach things differently. But if we both understand how the other gender thinks about these situations, I think we can then work much better together. But until we start having those conversations, I think women are still gonna have to work that little bit harder to get into those leadership roles. Mm. And when you started off your career, you sort of said, you know, sometimes it feels like there's either biases or unconscious biases or microaggressions. What was your experience and how did you manage those? If there are women out there who are experiencing this now, 
Well, I was, I suppose, a pretty tough, resilient individual. I was mm. very sporting. I played rugby. I was very, I suppose, physically quite strong. Yes. And in fact, I remember years ago when I was playing rugby and the men would make a comment about it, you know, and it was it was very conscious for them that I was a female rugby player. Okay. Now, so that we, was already loosening up some yes, of the, their stereotypes. Yes. But of course, that shouldn't be the case. And a lot of women aren't going to be even perhaps sporting at all. So that cannot be the only way to be a leader. But I, what I found is that by speaking to other women, so if you're facing situations and you don't know how to deal with them, I have found that the, the strength of being able to talk, and I call this a sort of these safe conversations, these mm. opportunities to have those safe conversations with other women, where you can share usually much more freely your concerns and um, your lack of confidence, and you know it won't go anywhere because you're all in, you're all supporting each other. That to me has been the most helpful thing if I've ever got any doubt if I can do something. That's really interesting. So finding a safe tribe where you can yeah. have those conversations and mm. do some real learning. So what are you proudest of in your career, Ingham? I look back and I think, was it the time at Lloyd's? Well, Lloyd's is perhaps too recent because we did a massive transformation mm. of this very old-fashioned institution. I think I have to go back to 2006, 2007 yeah. with the turnaround of Converium, that Swiss company where I was this young woman, as I said, quite naive young woman who hadn't read, who hadn't led a listed company before. Um, made a few mistakes, but boy, did we have success. And I think that was my most proudest moment. Mm. So what were you proud of? The turnaround or your ability to actually be your best self in that leadership role? The turnaround yeah. and the success that we had for yeah. all the employees around yeah. the world. Yeah. The joy when we got the upgrade from the financial strength ratings. The joy when we had a great year and we achieved amazing results. The joy that I saw on people's faces who yep. worked there. It was amazing. That must have been a huge high. Mm. So tell me a bit more about Lloyd's and the culture shift going into a very old organisation, an institution uh, that had been around for many hundreds of years. How did you first step into that and start to observe where you might be the most effective change agent? I was hired to introduce technology. Right. The market was as you say, three, over 300 years old, and was basically doing business the same way it had been doing it 300 years earlier, right. on paper. Right. And it's a $40 billion market, and most of it being done on paper, so very, very inefficient. And technology was the biggest single gap. So I was hired to introduce technology. Mm. But first of all, I had to understand why all the previous attempts over several decades had failed. So I made, uh, I had a lot of meetings and I listened to a lot of people. Okay. And I realized that actually it was because the market was made up of such a homogenous group of people in this clubby environment, all supporting each other, they didn't realize that they needed to change. Okay. So they didn't and, know what they didn't know. Yeah, and they had nobody new in there saying, well, why don't we do it this way? Mm. Well, shouldn't we do it that, that way? Mm. So I realized then it wasn't just about introducing technology, Changing the way people worked was very, very important, but we needed to bring new, fresh blood in to challenge the way things were being done. Right. And that was when I got into the topic of 
hiring diverse staff, making sure the market was appealing to different types of people. Um, we were showing that we were promoting women, we were showing people we, um, we were being they were being promoted from whatever ethnic background they were from. We talked a lot about the LGBT um, yeah. community and we found after a few years um, that we were attracting different types of people because we were very open about it and we were actively going after different types of people. And that diversity was about driving business impact and business change. Yes, because that was when you managed to get the creativity coming to the forefront. You found you got innovation coming through. Mm -hmm. You had teamwork coming through. You, you know, it was the, the way to solve every issue was to get a diverse team around the table. Mm. And, and that was how we had success. And what resistance did you meet? People were very fearful. Mm -hmm. They were fearful of changing the way their, you know, the way they worked. They were fearful for their jobs. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even though we'd managed to hire a lot of young people in, we realised that they were the most fearful actually because they just started out on their career and they thought technology was going to eliminate their jobs. So we spent a lot of time designing jobs for the future and reskilling them and assuring them that we would reskill them so that they would have a career in the insurance market into the future. So dialing down that anxiety that was driving their defensiveness. Mm. Okay, so what's, what's the toughest lesson that you've learned in your career? People are the most unpredictable. And sometimes you think you've got a really trusted team around you, and yet at any moment, anything can come along, an opportunity for one of them to, to mm. leave and do something different, or somebody who you thought was in your trusted circle that maybe isn't. Right. Um, understanding how people tick has and continues to me to be the most challenging thing for any leader. Mm. And sometimes people would say, but surely in the world of insurance, worrying about when the next earthquake might happen or the next hurricane, where you could lose billions yes. of pounds or dollars, Surely that's the thing that keeps you up at night and is your biggest challenge? I say no. Numbers and understanding and modelling things like that is much more predictable than managing and modelling people who I believe you absolutely can't model. And therefore, that to me is something I still want to learn more about. How to really understand how people tick, what makes them... Um, want to come to work, what makes them stay motivated and particularly now when you've got multi-generations in a workplace, mm -hmm. yeah. you've got a new generation coming in who want to work completely differently, they want to be treated completely differently, they want to be communicated with completely differently, plus um, you've got them with multi-generations who want a different way of, of working mm. to the young generation and that is a real leadership challenge. Yeah, so really understanding people and their motivations. Mm. So when you look at um, the progression of women into leadership over the last couple of decades, two or three decades, it's still quite glacial. What do you see as some of the either visible or invisible obstacles that are still sustaining in organisations to women's leadership progression? What's happening? Workplace culture is still not at a place that necessarily encourages women to stay. A lot of it can be just the day-to-day -day conversations that go on where they say, I'm not going to put up with this. Mm. Politics, what I found is women don't want to put up with the politics. Women perhaps feel, actually, I can do better if I go off and set my own business up. Yeah. So we have a lot of entrepreneurs mm. leaving the corporate world, 
setting up their own businesses and being very successful. I think we've got policies and practices that perhaps judge men and women differently. We often hear about this, that men are judged for their potential and women are not judged in the same way for yeah. their potential. People make judgments about women's expectations of careers. Yes. Maybe they've had some children and people assume that perhaps a woman doesn't want to take a relocation mm -hmm. job somewhere. There are all these things that tend to go against women that are in the, in the culture mm. of work that we've got to try and break down. And we've got to start thinking about gender neutralizing everything, whether it's parental leave, yes. health matters, whatever it is. Um, we've got to go through a, a process of, you know, of neutralizing everything. Yes. So those old gender roles aren't as prevalent, either for men or for women. Mm. Mm. Um, so given that, what was your experience at either Lloyd's or beyond or what you observe in other organisations um, that organisations can be doing better to ensure that their talented women are encouraged to do what you did, throw your hat in the ring, take a deep breath and know that you might not be fully prepared for this. What do you see as really working in organisations? The time is over for dilly-dallying around whether we should have targets. People should set targets for gender. Mm. I absolutely believe it. Hopefully within 10 years time, we won't need them anymore. Right. But right now we need them out there because change is too glacial. And very often what will happen is when you do put a woman into a role, she will do super well providing she's supported and given all the right um, advice, guidance, mentoring and sponsorship. Mm -hmm. So that we've got the gender difference of this confidence thing about how the women will often say they're not yet ready for a role mm -hmm. because they don't tick all the boxes. So to me, targets and forcing a certain gender balance on short lists and in teams is going to be one of the quickest, sure ways of making a difference. Because it will drive management behaviour and decision yes. making. Yeah. 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 And remuneration has to be affected by this. Mm -hmm. um, this is what we did as an insurance in, um, market or a company. We signed up to the Women in Finance Financial Services Charter, which means you've got to set targets for women in senior roles, and it's got to impact executive remuneration if you don't hit those targets. Yeah, very clear. So when you look back on your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? Believe in your own ability. That's, to me, the biggest thing. And also seek feedback, open and honest feedback, and relish that you're getting open and honest feedback instead of worrying and getting upset about it. It can be the best thing for you because then you take the feedback on board and you say, right, I'm going to do something about that. Because nearly always when people do give you some sort of feedback, particularly when it's your line manager, mm -hmm. if you can get them to be open and honest, it's the richest, best feedback you can get. So actively ask for it and mine it. Mm. Mm. And tell me about your mentors. You talked very early on about how your mentors were really important to you. What did they give you? They gave me advice either to have the courage to do something or to say, that's so ridiculous, Inga, don't do that. And they, that, that was basically it. I didn't take up too much of their time. Mm -hmm. But if I was, I mean, one time I was offered a, what I regarded as a sideways move. It wasn't a promotion. One of my mentors said, look, Inga, the corporate world moves so quickly before you know it, the whole situation is going to change and you're going to get another great opportunity. Best piece of advice I ever got. Yeah. Because surefire, within 15 months, my boss had moved and I got offered my boss's job. Yeah. So 
those things, those little snippets can be so valuable. And what about sponsorship? People advocating for you. How important was that in your career? Sponsorship has been talked about much more in recent years. I'm sure I had sponsors, but it wasn't something that featured. That you labelled, yeah. Wasn't something that featured throughout my career. But even if I think about how supported I was at GE, I must have had people looking after me, putting me on lists, putting me on yes. the succession plan. Somebody was out there looking after me, but maybe I I wasn't aware of them. Mm. So finally, Inga, what advice would you have for women aspiring to senior executive leadership roles? Aim high. Don't be put off by your own barriers. I always sort of think about it as smash your own glass ceiling because sometimes we put those barriers in front of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Seek um, other input. So that can be from men and women, input on you. Make sure that you're fully equipped, you know your strengths, and you know your weaknesses and you can counteract anything where you think you've got a gap in learning or experience. Particularly if you want to be a CEO, go for those P&L and business roles if you can. Don't be fearful of taking on a challenge. Try and expose yourselves to as many different cultures as you can. I found one of the most richest learnings for me was to work in different countries and work with people from different backgrounds and different cultures. And then you can be such an all-round leader, you can get that CEO job. Inga, what a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time and wisdom. Dame Inga Beale. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.